0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Push Through Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Reeves. I'm a licensed professional counselor with a group practice here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I specialize in women as well as maternal mental health. Here on the podcast, we'll talk about womanhood, motherhood, and a little bit of everything in between. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a quick chat with me. And don't they bless me when I fall yeah. Thank you guys for joining us for another episode of the Push Through Podcast. I am so thrilled that I have my next guest, which is Sophia Barrett. And Sophia, thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me. (laughs) And just to properly introduce um, Sophia, Sophia did my family portraits, and I'll get into what a remarkable experience that was for me and kind of a full circle moment mm-hmm. for me of how I ended up booking. But um, Sophia is a portrait photographer. She has had her own personal battle with infertility. She grew up in Northern Massachusetts with Caribbean parents. Are they Haitian? Yes. Well, well, you're Haitian. So what What do I mean? Are they Haitian? <laughs> 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 and um, no, yeah. uh-huh. you attended... Um, the University of New England School of Design with a degree in interior design, which makes sense because you have a very great artistic eye. And Thank you. And your focus on your work has currently primarily been on maternity, motherhood, and modern portraits. Your studio mm-hmm. was founded in 2010, and everything... That you put out is breathtaking. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, labor of love. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to go back a little bit, um, so you grew up in Massachusetts. What mm-hmm. was what was life like for you growing up?
1: Man, you already hitting with like the hard stuff, believe it or not. <laughs> like, <laughs> Massachusetts is hard. Like, Massachusetts mm-hmm. being a, a black person growing up, especially, you know, being a black person with immigrant parents, that was, it, it was, um, I mean, of course, that's all I knew because that's, you know, what I was born into. But um, Massachusetts, was difficult I would say for me um I really enjoyed the circle of people I grew up with my father is a pastor Mm -hmm. so um growing up I grew up around other Haitian families Mm -hmm. because we um you know the churches that my father pastored were Haitian so I had that um, but you know, elementary school, high school, um, and even college was really hard for me growing up because I was always an outcast. I was always, um, you know, I didn't get along with like the other students really, uh, always picked on. Mm. I had my small group of friends in the school who also were, um, Haitian and Seventh day Adventist. I grew up seven day Adventist. Mm. Um, So, uh, those, you know, my friends were like the only people that I, I hung out with in school. Um, but everything from social experiences to educational experiences were like, those were difficult for me, um, outside of like my Haitian, um, circles, so I was very anxious to leave Massachusetts. I, I,
0: <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. How um how were you just able to cope with that? Like what what were those things that kind of helped you survive all of that?
1: My art. I was always ever since I was very young, you know, like some of like the earliest Uh, memories I have of making things were like I wanted to play school in the backyard. I wanted to be the teacher. So I had like my my dolls and stuff, animals, and I took my dad's saw out of the garage and I sawed wood and I took his drill. Whenever he couldn't find his drill, he knew it was under underneath my bed and I was making like little tables so I could sit like my, my dolls down and yeah, yeah, I, I did take a saw
0: without <laughs> <my parents. laughs>
1: um, and, you know, making clothes, selling, you know, bracelets at school, mm. um, at during recess, um, staying up, watching HDTV, uh. making, you know, outfits or painting paintings. Um, you know, I was always, doing something artistic. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was my, my outlet. I would, everyone would be asleep and I'd be up at three o'clock in the morning making pillows, you know, or, you know, that was what I would spend all my time doing something artistic. That was my outlet. Um, that's what I spent all my time doing growing up. Awesome.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. So you got out of high school and you ended up at um University where you were studying design what was that like did it feel like an escape from everything that you had been through?
1: Well f- uh, growing up let me backtrack just a little bit mm-hmm. so I um, g- you know growing up in a Caribbean home you know I don't even think it's just a Caribbean home a household you know growing up, I'm sure you're you're very familiar with that. You will be a doctor. You will be mm-hmm. a lawyer. You mm-hmm. will be a you know. My, being an architect was like so left field for my parents, <laughs> but they're like, yeah, you can make money with that. Sure, you can be an architect. <laughs> um, so um, I, when I graduated high school, I actually started with criminal justice. Hmm. Because, you know, my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. They thought I could be a lawyer because mm-hmm. I did like to argue or <laughs> um, whatever else. But um, they're like, you could be a lawyer. So started with criminal justice, you know, and, and I immediately was like, this is not what I'm going to do. But I went to um, Andrews University in Michigan and studied architecture. So um, I finished off with interior design in Massachusetts because I, I, I left Andrews um, and I didn't want to continue architecture, but I still enjoyed, I enjoyed some aspects of architecture um, and it may have been, you know, just my experience overall that affected like how I felt about my degree at the time or Mm -hmm. or what I was pursuing. Mm -hmm. But I finished off with interior design um, because I felt like it gave me more of the creative, Um, flexibility that I was looking for. And Mm -hmm. it still was very much, you know, um, architecture based. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I finished off with. Uh, But repeat
0: your question one more time. What was the experience like in college?
1: Oh, um, the experience at Andrews University was different from my experience at um, New England School of Art and Design or Suffolk University. Um, so at Andrews, it was, um, a lot more diverse. Mm. So my experience there was a good experience. Like I, I enjoyed school. I enjoyed college when I was at Andrews, but then when I went back to New England School of Art and Design in Boston, I was right back in the same type of environment where, um, you know, I was being discriminated against, Mm. you know, for everything from, you know, my interactions with my teachers to like the grades that I was getting. Mm. Um, I did well, but I had to fight a lot harder to, um, you know, to get the grades that I deserved. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I'm not regretful for, you know, or I feel like what I went through is a huge reason to why I see the world the way that I do. And, you know, the work that I do. Um, But my experience in college, you know, because I went to two different universities, there were two different experiences, um, very different from each other.
0: Okay. How did you end up in Atlanta?
1: Well, I came here when I was, like, 16, and I remember getting off the plane and being in awe mm-hmm. with,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, and I don't know if I'm, like, too focused on the whole, you know, race No, thing that's and... your experience. <laughs> no, please share. <laughs> yeah. I remember, like, getting off the plane and being completely floored by what I saw. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Mm-hmm. I had never seen that many, you know, people of color like in in one space. And I was in an airport. I wasn't at a function. I wasn't at church. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't at like a specific event. Mm-hmm. I was just at the airport. And I remember like being completely shocked. Um, and then growing up, you know, Atlanta was always on my radar for like where I wanted to live. So. Uh, Once I graduated and I had uh, at the time, a really good friend who lived here and she welcomed me to come in, like move in with her once I graduated. Mm. So literally (laughs) the day I graduated, we had our graduation party um, later on that, uh, that day, like pretty much after all the festivities were finished, I packed my car up and I left. Wow. Um, so I moved to Atlanta because I, I just wanted to be somewhere where I didn't feel like I didn't belong.
0: Mm, hmm. hmm. And I, I mean, just wanted to be
1: somewhere where I, you know, I could be comfortable. Yeah. And, you know, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I, I relate to that and I completely understand it. I grew up in South Georgia and mm. um, very rural and, and I initially wanted to go to New York. I had gotten accepted to NYU and my parents mm-hmm. um, didn't want me to go because of, you know, you're from a small town, you're going to get murdered in the street or something like that. <laughs> and yeah. so the compromise was Atlanta. But I, I totally relate to Atlanta is like a Wakanda in its own of like, yeah. you know, being able to see black people doing well and, and having mm-hmm. careers and and then that sense of freedom, where you can freely be yourself and and yeah. do all of the things that you want to do. And I I'd heard of that of Massachusetts, where there was that um, discrimination. I have a a, mm-hmm. a couple of relatives that live up there, and um, so just to hear your own experience and then what it was like for you when you got down here when you first. Saw everything here so that I could completely understand. So once you arrived and got settled, what happened next? So,
1: um, I started working as an interior designer, um, for Ikea. Mm. Um, and I, I, enjoyed that. Um, I really liked, uh, you know, applying what I'd learned, um, you know in in so what we were in charge of doing as you know there were a group of us um so like the department that i was in was called um come in and there were visual merchandisers as well as the interior designers so the interior designers would do the sets. so as you're walking through you know ikea you're seeing sets that were designed um by corporate that then maybe changed or adjusted for, you know, our direct market, um, uh, you know, so that when people come in, it makes sense for the people who shop our stores and all that. Um, and, you know, I had an opportunity to like go to corporate and design for like design kitchens for like the different Ikeas in the United States. Mm. Um, so I really enjoyed my experience there. I enjoyed learning, you um, as well as, like, the people that I worked with. But it wasn't, I always knew I was going to work for myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I always knew that I wasn't going to work um, for a long time within any corporate, you know, situation. Or if I started off doing that, it was just to give me, you know, some experience. And then I was just going to go off by myself. Um, but I was having a hard time finding, like, a firm. Mm-hmm. And I wanted. I was ready to work for myself, and I started. Uh, my husband bought me a, a DSLR camera, mm. and I started taking pictures of friends. And ever since I was younger, I would always take photos. My father had an old Minolta camera that he always found underneath my bed if he couldn't find it. <laughs> and <laughs> and you know, um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed taking photos of my friends, and you know, of you know Derek at the time he was. Uh, we weren't married yet and, uh, I started to see the possibility and of course, granted that wasn't a far throw cause I will always find a way to monetize mm-hmm. <laughs> like something. Cause ever since I was little, I was always hustling. Mm. So, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, we went ahead and started looking at, you know, doing events or weddings, um, mm-hmm. And I started making a little bit of money and, you know, Derek was like, as long as you make close to what you make at Ikea, <laughs> then you could quit. Um, so I got to that point and um, there is a, a really awesome uh, planner and friend. Her name is Eliana um, with LED events. And she's the one who gave me like my first big break. Mm. Um, so I started photographing um weddings for her. And that's what really like made a shift um, in our business. That's what really, you know, created that shift. Um, Her supporting me and seeing in, you know, um, and it wasn't just me, Derek was shooting with me too. My husband ended up also um, loving photography Mm -hmm. and he's an awesome photographer in his own right. Um, But uh, she gave us our first big break and we started, you know, shooting a lot more consistently Um, And that's pretty much, you know, uh, how it started.
0: Wow. So when you founded the studio in 2010 and you decided that you wanted to focus on maternity, motherhood and modern projects, how how was that shift and how was it for you to have that that focus? So I always the entire time that we had the
1: studio, we photographed portrait sessions. Um, We didn't do it a lot because um, we were focused more on weddings. Um, What ended up happening was we got to a point where we were ready to start having kids. And we, you know, started trying, um, even though we kind of, we never really gave thought to the whole like, hey, you know, we haven't really been using birth control that heavily. Um, We probably should have been pregnant by now, but we didn't give it any thought. You know, the doctors for a year, we mm-hmm. still weren't pregnant, and we found out that we were um, we wouldn't be able to have children naturally. Mm-hmm. And that whole thing from you know everything that we experienced is I, is really what shifted my focus in in like period, uh, from shifting from weddings to um, portraiture before focusing on maternity the way that I, I, I do now.
0: And now for a quick break. Motherhood is an incredible blessing that is rewarding and a remarkable experience. What often happens for many women as they become a mother is that they lose themselves in the role of being a mother. Our bodies change, which often affects our self-esteem and how we feel about ourselves, and serving others from our children to our partners and even to our work can put us in a position of placing our own wants and desires on the back burner. This is where the annual Push Through Mama Summit comes into play. This is a space where mamas will learn how to embrace the powerful, strong, and beautiful bodies that we have. We'll also learn strategies on how to create the life that you want, implement the old you into your new life, and instill parts of you that have been overshadowed by the responsibilities on your plate. Mamas don't have to lose who they were just because they became a mother. Both worlds can merge together, creating a beautiful union. There's no time like now to have support in order to push through. Sign up now while tickets are on sale to join our virtual summit on September 18th from 11 to 2. You don't wanna miss out. Tickets are going fast. Head over to pushthroughmom.com, hit the events page and get your ticket today. Mm -hmm. So then to even like shift for a bit, Um, in my work, you know, I'm a therapist. I see clients who are dealing with maternal mental health. So the population that I see are women who are dealing with infertility, going through IVF, surrogacy, adoption, as well Mm -hmm. as women who are transitioning into motherhood or dealing with postpartum depression and, um, black maternal mental health is a passion of mine and infertility Um, Looking at stats, Black women are um, two times more likely to deal with infertility than their counterparts. But also, Mm -hmm. infertility isn't something that's often discussed within the the Black community. Um, Mm -hmm. Looking at different options, rather through adoption or IVF, IUIs, um, surrogacy isn't also something that's often discussed. Um, Mm -hmm. And then even... I find like with clients that I work with, when they get the diagnosis of infertility and learning that conceiving naturally will be something that's not not in the cards for them, that's a very difficult thing to accept. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How was that for you? Like, how did you take that information and then make the next decision of how you were going to get to motherhood?
1: So um, I'm going to do my very best to not get emotional. I've already started. Mm -hmm. Like the minute we started talking about Boston, I started getting emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, So finding out that we wouldn't be able to conceive naturally was earth shattering for me at that time. Um, I, you know, was depressed. I was like, what is life type thing? Like growing up, you know, especially with my mom Like, my mom sacrificed, my parents, both of my parents sacrificed so much, right? But we know that, like, the responsibility that a woman feels on herself when she has children Mm -hmm. is different. So, like, my mom worked nights and so that she could be home during the day, cook for us every day or every couple of days if there was leftovers, you know. But my mom raised us. In a way where, and I know that this is something that is very common, like within our, you know, uh, our culture, as well as just motherhood in general, like, women are raised to believe that, you know, probably the most important um, thing that they'll do with their life is be a mother, Mm -hmm. period, Mm -hmm. right? And if you don't, you know, give birth to a child you know, it's almost as if you know, it's, it's akin to like feeling at life, mm. right? For women who are single, who, you know, have such a hard time or, or you know, they're single at, at, at an older age, you know, society tells them that they're not, they're not complete. Um, so for me, growing up, I always envisioned, you know, this perfect idea of, you know, I would be Married at this age I would have children at this age I would have my perfect family They would look like me and my husband And whatever else Mm -hmm. So um, When we were told That I Like everything stopped for me Everything stopped Nothing was important anymore Um, You know I Was immediately thinking Okay how can I fix this What can we do so, um, the doctors told us to try for a year. We tried for a year and, um, we decided to do IVF and, um, we did one round of IVF and we only did one round of IVF because immediately after the failed, um, IVF, I developed idiopathic intracranial hypertension.
0: Hmm.
1: So, um, what the doctors were telling me was basically, you know, you know, IIH is a rare disease. So because it's a rare disease, there isn't a whole lot of funding for understanding the disease. Um, so that was by itself just difficult to deal with. But what they were telling me was that most likely from like the hormones that I, you know, wasn't, were, you know, the, the injections that I took or whatever else messed with my my, the levels of my body, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a result, I have IIH and IIH is basically, um, my, uh, I forgot the name of the gland in my brain. It makes too much spinal fluid. Mm. So that causes swelling. Um, and it causes my brain to swell, mm. um, which causes blindness. The, the reason why they found out that I had it was I went to go to my op top ophthalmologist mm-hmm. to, um, you know, upgrade my glasses because I felt like something was off and then I was getting up and my eyesight would go like dark, pitch black, and then it would come back or whatever. Um, And he saw the bleeding on my optic nerve. And that's what he sent me to a neuro-ophthalmologist. And they were like, yeah, you have, you know, they, they remove liquid from my spine and um, told me that I I had IIH. We decided not to do IVF again. Mm -hmm. um, And went. we tried to, okay, we were going to adopt, but the cost of adoption, we weren't prepared at that time to to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like, okay, we knew we were going to do foster care later on, but maybe we just do foster care now. So um, we we went and we started that process. That process was eye opening. It was hard. Mm-hmm. It was rewarding. Uh, it was so much. Mm-hmm. Um, But like seeing what kids go through, I don't, my parents fostered when I was kid, when I was a a younger, um, when I was younger, um, but I didn't, my parents never spoke to me about like what the parents were doing to the kids Mm -hmm. or, you know, what they went through or what they understood and, you know, experiencing that, seeing what people will do to kids Mm -hmm. (laughs) or what, you know, some children endure was really eye-opening for for us um but that's pretty much how we got to you know um how we started fostering um and then how we ultimately adopted um our daughter
0: right. um
1: and me. Mm-hmm.
0: now that thank you for sharing that for one and two going back to what we were talking about how all of this is just not talked about like amongst mm-hmm. us um how was that you sharing this information with your immigrant parents? Like how did that conversation go? Did they understand it? Were they supportive? Did you have any hesitance in sharing? Oh yeah.
1: like um, I didn't have any hesitancy. My husband's family was a little more on the fence about the whole thing, you know, with IVF, right? Because mm-hmm. IVF, you know, to some people is like you're playing God. Mm um, for my parents, they were supportive, but they also, you know, coming from my father being a pastor, my family is very spiritual, very, um, religious. Mm -hmm. So like for my parents, it was like, you know, you just need to pray more, or you just need to, you know, adjust something there's something in your life that is preventing this blessing from you know from coming on y'all and you just need to fix that mm. you don't need to do IDF. you don't need to spend the money and you know do that whole thing not so much that they thought IDF was evil or anything but they were just like you don't need to do that um but it, it was a matter of science,
0: right? right? right.
1: It was a matter of science. It was a matter of like what my body was doing as well as my husband's. Um, so it was difficult to talk to not just family members, but to talk to other people about it. Um, especially to people who weren't experiencing infertility. Mm Mm-hmm um because you know you have people who are just saying like oh you just need to relax you're right. you're too yeah you're too uptight about it you just not need not to think about it and you guys will get pregnant mm. or watch you guys are going to you know do IVF and then get pregnant naturally or um you know some people would would just not be sensitive to it at all and and say things that were really hurtful without them even realizing Mm -hmm. that they were hurtful, which Mm -hmm. is actually most of the time, you know, Mm -hmm. when it comes to infertility, people don't understand that what they're saying is, is messed up.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's just, I always say that it's like mean well, like in their mind, they're meaning well, but Mm -hmm. they're causing a lot of hurt. Um, Mm -hmm. I've heard, you know, people tell family members like, Oh, just wait and see. You guys are going to, End up having twins, you know. You're you you're just mm-hmm. and this person is aware of what their body is doing mm-hmm. and aware of the challenges. Um, yeah. So to hear that can be very hard for them. What? Mm-hmm. How were you able to even just like maintain your mental health like throughout that process or or be able to not look at your body in a negative way? What helped you through that?
1: I didn't in the beginning. In the beginning,
0: ma'am, I was borderline, I
1: I didn't want to live. Mm -hmm. So I was not, I I wasn't really maintaining it. Mm -hmm. But fostering helped me see things outside of, like, what I grew up thinking motherhood was. Mm -hmm. Or, like, what I was expecting. It helped me see, like, that me wanting to give birth to a child... And this is me. This mm-hmm. is how I feel, mm-hmm. right? Um, me having that desire, and um, it's it's a it's wanting to give birth to a kid to a, a child is is a, a good thing to want. However, to the extent that I was wanting it, it was more about my ego, mm. right? It was more about me seeing my offspring. Mm-hmm. It was more about me seeing a child with my face, you know, because when we started fostering. Is like, dude, there are kids that need parents. Period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That don't have parents. Um, so I, it was more of a moment of realization for me that shifted how I started seeing my situation. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm, I love that. I love that um, because it was like you gave yourself options. Like you didn't mm-hmm. box yourself in um because mm-hmm. i often I often work with many mothers where you know they they want it this one way but motherhood can look in various ways absolutely um, and just ultimately like getting to the goal of being a mother once mm-hmm. you um adopted your daughter how was that for you what it what did it feel like
1: it was so relieving mm-hmm. um because when you foster, you know, the children that are in your home, they belong to the state, mm-hmm. right? So you have no idea what will happen tomorrow because it's, it's up to the state. And not every agency works in ways that I would say is um, completely just or moral. Because mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, for a lot of these, you know, um, organizations, it's about money. Mm-hmm. Um so that when it comes when it came to foster care it was difficult to deal with. But um when we adopted her, it was very it was very settling because it was like, okay, like you're not going anywhere. You're mm. here, you're ours, you know, like you're safe. Um it, it was a great feeling because We had Emmy from when she was three weeks old. Mm. So, like, she only knew us. Mm -hmm. She only knew us as parents. And just the thought of, you know, her being traumatized and put somewhere else. We were just so relieved um, when that day came. And she's amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Emmy is, she's perfect. She's, you know, she had a lot of challenges that, you know, she overcame, she's strong. It was, it it really feels like she was meant to, to be with us, Mm. you know? So like, we just feel so blessed that despite, you know, what we went through and the experience that we went through, that it ended up the way it did. Mm. Like, it was just like, okay, well, you know, it all worked out. It was Mm. worth it, you know? So
0: that is beautiful um, that is beautiful Sophia <laughs> <laughs> um, through throughout your life who do you feel like were maternal influences for you
1: um definitely my mom like um, what I strive for is to be as like sacrificing as she is mm. because um, like, I could not imagine working full shifts at night and then being up all day, pretty much sleeping for a couple of hours and then going right back the next night to do it again. Mm. Um, like I, I couldn't imagine doing that. And it's not like she's like a nurse where she has off, off weeks or off days. You know, my mom is doing this sometimes like she was doing it from sunday to friday or no sunday to like thursday being said that that she wouldn't work friday nights um but it was like growing up i took it you know for granted i didn't realize like how much she was doing and like she was cooking <laughs> she was cooking cleaning we didn't have you know and nobody else was coming in and cleaning the house she was doing it we were doing it with her um you know, she provided for us. Both of my parents did. Like, this isn't to, like, um taking anything away from my dad. Because mm-hmm. my dad did so much for us. He was present. It's not like he wasn't present. My father was very present. But he was the one who was the main, you know, uh, breadwinner. Mm-hmm. So it was mostly my mom who was home with us. And um being a woman and being a mom, you know, she... Like I, I, want to be as good of a mom as she was mm. or is. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, I feel like I'm still working super hard, <laughs> um, to reach that.
0: Mm-hmm. And sometimes this is, this is my personal belief. You know, mm-hmm. there's no, uh, manual to motherhood. We kind yeah. of just show up and figure it out. And I, I believe that, uh, we evolve from how our mothers were mothers. You know, like mm-hmm. we have a chance to implement our own touches to it and finesse it in our own way while still having learned a lot of things from our moms, but to continue like the generational love, um, mm-hmm. but then to also add in our own spice to motherhood Absolutely. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel like your daughter has taught you? Like just as a woman, like how, how do you feel like motherhood has changed you?
1: Um, it it has definitely made me, um, like I, I have a hard time just sitting and accepting a situation as it is. Mm. I have a really hard time. Like I'm a fixer. Mm. I'm very much like a, let's figure something out. Let's, you know, adjust this or, or change this. Um, and Emmy has definitely taught me how to, and is still teaching me, mm-hmm. um, how to accept just what is mm-hmm. and to be okay with what is mm-hmm. and to find the joy in what I don't necessarily think I want or like I'm not happy about, but um, she's teaching me that patience right and and to find because emmy's always happy like (laughs) if she is upset about something just give her three minutes not even (laughs) and she's gonna be right back to singing at the top of her lungs and spinning and jumping and um and i love that about her and everyone who meets her loves that about her like she is so easy to please (laughs) she's so easy to please she's so um Like she's, she's like sunshine. So, um, I feel like that's what she's taught me.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So going back to your work, um, -hmm. I first, well, you, you were there, but you weren't there. So I went to, um, uh, mother's shower. I was speaking on a panel for mental health at the shower Yes, Mm -hmm. and you had your, vendor table set up, but you weren't physically there. And um, I looked at like your portfolio and I got a card and I was just so just stunned by the beauty of it all. um, hmm. And so in my mind, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to book a session because I was pregnant at the time, but I was early in my second pregnancy. And oh, okay. after my first pregnancy, I had um, postpartum anxiety disorder with Ezra. Mm. And it was a very, very difficult experience, which is part of why I do the work that I do now. And I, mm-hmm. I was implementing all of these things with my second pregnancy to just make me in a better headspace. And something that was important to me was to just feel good about my body and about myself. And mm-hmm. as I was approaching booking, the pandemic hit. And um, mm. the doctor was like, basically, you can't leave the house. If you do and you get COVID, you'll be quarantined from your baby. So I like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I threw out the idea. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and then it was after I had him, you know, and it, and it hit. It was me adjusting to my postpartum body. And I got these two kids now. It's the pandemic. I'm at home with them. We're just trying to like figure this thing out. And it was two people that I knew that just came up on my timeline that had had their session with you. And they had it at maybe like a month apart of each other. And I was like, it is a sign you need to book. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad I did, too. And I booked um, at the end of 2020. This is how Sophia be booked up. Like it took before we had our consultation. It was maybe like two months later because she booked now. And, um, the experience, if I could gift this to every woman, I would, because Mm. I never felt more beautiful. I felt like I had Mm. spent the day with sisters and Mm. like how I felt like gassed up. Even when we went through the photos, um, Nikita was like, I don't, it sucks to be you, Keisha. How can you even (laughs) just pick just one? How can you pick just one photo? (laughs) You know? Like, <laughs> I mean, and I've I've told everybody that just the the female energy in the room, and then the mm. fact that you are so freaking talented, Sophia. Like everything that you post, that you do is is like is gorgeous, and you make mm-hmm. a woman feel so stunning in her most you know, somewhat vulnerable time, whether it's during the pregnancy or, or afterwards or with her family. And, mm-hmm. and it was an investment that these are portraits my kids can carry on and pass on and we can house in our house. And I am just so grateful and I love the work that you do.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm so appreciative. Like, you know, with what I do, um, like I have imposter syndrome really bad. What so, <laughs> yeah, I do, really, 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 really bad. Um, so you know, when people say this to me, it's 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 really nice to hear. Um, but I think the parts where it it means the most is when I understand that, like, you are happy about what you are receiving for your family. Mm. Like it, it means. Something and it's it's impactful that you know when I know that then I know that I succeeded. Um, So, ma'am, when I tell you your (laughs) photos are about to shut down the internet, what? (laughs) So, ma'am, the the floating shot, that floating. I'm almost done. We're almost done. Oh my god, I
0: can't wait.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're almost done, Um, but like that is that I'm so glad that you said that as inspiration, like that you wanted to do something that had that kind of, you know, creative feel to it. Mm -hmm. And is like, kind of like out of this world. So I'm really looking forward to (laughs) delivering them to you, but you know, when that, that's really important for me Mm -hmm. because I understand like my art is my art, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's what I do, but it doesn't mean anything. If it doesn't mean anything to you and your family. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. So,
1: you know, that is, definitely, you know, our mission.
0: Ah. Now, how how do you find balance? Because I, I often, when we hear like work-life balance, I don't believe in it because I feel like, <laughs> is there ever always a balance? But I feel like in my experiences being a customer of yours, you mm-hmm. guys were so professional, so timely, great communicators. And at the same time, like, your studio is in the backyard. Like, how mm-hmm. do you balance being a mom, a wife, an entrepreneur, a boss? Like, how do you do that?
1: mm mm-hmm. um, uh, How? <laughs> <laughs> do I find that? I mean, I have my limits, right? Like, mm-hmm. Saturdays, the weekends are for my family. Mm. Like, I, I don't shoot on the weekends. People get upset because that's like when they're available. Um, but weekends are for my family. And that was another reason why we stopped shooting weddings mm. um, because weekends for, for us are so important. Um, so that, that is one way that we find balance. We try to make sure that we take trips together, mm. um, you know, meaningful moments time spent with family. Um, have I perfectly found like my, my perfect balance? <laughs> have, I, have I found my perfect balance within SBS? No, I haven't, but I'm working really hard um, to reach that point. Um, but I think that like what I've done so far is definitely helping, um, you know, trying to be available to Emmy when she comes back home from daycare, mm. Um, you know, trying to make sure that we're spending time cooking in the kitchen together. That's something that Emmy loves to do with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's pretty good at it. She knows almost, like, she knows a lot of spices. Like, if I ask her to pull some out, like, she can taste things and know, um, like, oh, that's garlic or that's onion or... um, So doing things like that with her are really important. Um, Making sure that I'm spending time with, you know, Derek, my husband spending time with him, things, you know, still doing, trying to do date nights and and whatever else. Like that's right now how I'm finding balance, Mm -hmm. um, and putting up boundaries, uh, because our business is very focused on, um, like customer service and, and you feeling like you are part of the process. Mm. Like we don't like our clients to just show up and then them feel like they have no idea what's about to happen, Mm -hmm. you know? And so because of that, we probably are more available to our clients and maybe other photography studios. Um, And that does complicate things a little further when it comes to like a balance. But what I love about the clients that we have is that they are also very family centered, right? Mm -hmm. So our clients have that understanding, um, and, and give us that grace. So they, you know, I I love my clients, you know, so I, I, am happy that that's the type of client that we attract. Mm -hmm. Um, and it definitely helps uh, me when it comes to creating that balance.
0: Awesome. Okay, so my final question, um, for any woman that is going through infertility, what advice or encouragement would you give to her? Um,
1: this, I feel like this is advice that most women who are going through this reject mm-hmm. pretty quickly, because um, I know I would have. Um, in the very beginning, but I feel like it's a, a, you know, a huge like when you watch shows like Being Mary Jane, mm-hmm. right? For people who watch that before they go through it, if they're if they will go through it, they think it's dramatized, like like they think it's, you know, how she's acting, what she's thinking is, you know, so when it when it came to her dealing with infertility on the show, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I tell people, like, dude, no, that's exactly what people who are going through that, that's how they feel, that's how they act, that's what they do, Mm -hmm. right? Women who desperately want to have children, you know, and I think that's part of why, like, IVF is as much as it costs, Mm -hmm. because they know that we will pay it. (laughs) We will pay it. We so desperately want to give birth to a kid. But... I think that fostering did so much to open up my eyes to really understanding what was important, it completely, like, it immediately switched that in my brain. Mm. And I think that, like, when it came to infertility, that was the biggest thing, like, how I dealt with my emotions, how I dealt with, you know, how I felt, if I felt like I wasn't enough or if I felt like I wasn't complete... Like all of these things are not true, and um, fostering, I think, helped me understand. Like my me wanting to be a mother, me wanting to care for you know a, a, a little one, me wanting to care for someone else. I that doesn't only apply if it's my my child, mm-hmm. my kid, mm-hmm. and. I think that fostering, you know, and giving to someone else who is in need right now, someone who is here existing and they're not receiving love, they're not receiving care, they are being neglected or abused or whatever the case, you know, that love that you want to give so badly, there's someone here right now who wants it. Um, So instead of, You know, thinking that your only option to be able to, you know, have a child is through IVF or surrogacy or, you know, I think that fostering, even if you don't want to adopt right away, Mm -hmm. just fostering for, you know, even if it's a shorter amount of time, just give someone some love for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that that will do a really great like I mean for me I believe it to be almost a cure all Mm -hmm. like you're helping someone you're giving love to someone it helps to re uh, center your mind as to what's important um, and what you can do and what a family looks like and what you think it needs to look like Mm -hmm. Um, so that would be my advice
0: good good stuff Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for all of your gems and sharing your story. I'm going to put all of your info in the show notes. um, So anybody who wants to potentially book with you or follow your work can. But thank you so much, Sophia.
1: Thank you, Keisha. Thank you for thinking of me. I really, really, really appreciate this. I don't like talking a whole lot, but when you asked me, I was like, yes. (laughs) <laughs> i will do it so <laughs> thank you how <laughs> will tell you you're right when-